Your film is now ready to be shown. Good morning. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. We've got three great interviews today. We're going to cover the question of polarization and extremism on social media, anti-Asian disinformation and harassment, and last week's hearings with Facebook executives in the Canadian Parliament. Our first segment features an interview with Chris Bale, a researcher who runs the Polarization Lab at Duke University. This week, Chris's new book will hit bookshelves. It's called Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing, and it's his second book, the first, Terrified, How Anti-Muslim Fringe Organizations Became Mainstream, was also published by Princeton University Press. Here's Chris. My name is Chris Bale. I'm a professor of sociology, public policy, and data science at Duke University, where I direct the Polarization Lab, which is an interdisciplinary team of scholars, political scientists, sociologists, data scientists, who are trying to both diagnose the root cause of polarization on social media and then develop solutions for it. And, and that's what I talk about in this new book, uh, Breaking the Social Media Prism, How to Make Our Platforms Less Polarizing. Can you just tell me how you got to the Polarization Lab, a uh, little bit about your journey uh, to this place? For about a decade now, I've been studying social media and political polarization. My first book was about how fringe ideas become mainstream. And in the process of writing that book, especially, I learned that, you know, we, we just have to understand the role of social media in this process. I mean, it's, it, you know, it's clear as day, you know, everywhere we look, there's examples of, you know, fringe ideas becoming mainstream. And, you know, at the same time, there was this remarkable moment in social science. Um, you know, people are calling it the golden age of social science. You know, we have more data than we've ever had before. We're inundated with data. And it used to be, you know, years ago that you would, you know, you'd, you'd survey a thousand people, you know, or you'd, you'd talk to a couple dozen people and, uh, you know, then you'd tell your story. You know, now we have the ability to collect data about massive networks of people in relatively short order. So, so that's a huge opportunity, but there's, you know, immense challenges as well. And so this lab is really just a, an effort to corral all the data across disciplines with as many different perspectives as we can because we think this is an inherently interdisciplinary problem. And, and, and to be frank too, it stretches beyond academia too. You know, we need, we need to involve advocacy groups. We need to involve journalists like yourself. We need to involve uh, government. And, and that's very much what we're trying to do right now. One of the things that clearly you do in this book is you take on some of these popular narratives about how social media shapes uh, political polarization. But I guess, you know, can I step back a second and just ask about polarization itself, like where are we at? I mean, the, uh, clearly in the U.S. and maybe in other democracies, it, we think of polarization as being at, a, at an all-time high. Is that the case? You know, it depends how we define it. For the first time ever in the U.S., out-party hate has surpassed in-party love. So, you know, we hate the other party more than we like our own party. Um, we discovered that in some research that I did with uh, a kind of blue chip panel of, of academic social psychologists, like uh, political scientists, psychologists. And so we know that affective polarization is growing. That is, you know, intergroup animosity. What's more complex is actual policy disagreements. And, you know, there's evidence both ways uh, that, but probably it's not uh, growing as much as this affective polarization, which many of us think is actually more sinister than the policy-based disagreements. And so a lot of folks have looked at social media and looked at changes in the media ecosystem as playing a key role in this, but you kind of challenge some of those narratives. Exactly, yeah. I think, you know, there's just an absence of high quality research in the debate right now. I mean, the strongest and loudest voices are tech leaders or former tech leaders and then policymakers. And, you know, none of these people have really, in my view, brought enough research to bear on, on the question. So to give just three popular examples, the idea of the echo chamber, you know, it's pretty pervasive that tech companies and, and social media platforms have trapped us in filter bubbles. You know, everybody knows this story that prevent us from seeing the other side. Well, some of our research shows that stepping outside your echo chamber could make you more polarized, not less. Another strand of research we did really, uh, you know, tried to figure out what's going on with misinformation campaigns. If you read, you know, the, the popular accounts, 
you know, Russia really tore this country apart in the last four years. Um, we had some unique opportunities to actually study that with, you know, pretty sophisticated methods and couldn't find any evidence that people were changing their minds when they interacted with at least the Russia-linked IRA in the year that we studied. You know, finally, the idea that algorithms radicalize people, it's a super seductive idea, especially when it's, you know, delivered by these kind of like apocryphal tech leaders, you know, people who profited from uh, allegedly, you know, these, these kinds of algorithms that feed us increasingly radical content. Even there, there there's not a lot of evidence so far um, to support that hypothesis. But of course, we need much, much more data before we can rule out any of these popular narratives. So I, I wouldn't want to say platforms are blameless or these things don't matter. But what I would like to propose is we've got so much energy on these three things. You know, the evidence suggests it's probably not going to move the needle very much, and it might even move it in the wrong direction. And we're doing so little in the space of the supply problem, you know, what the actual people producing the vitriol on the platforms. And so one of the main things I wanted to do in this book is develop a theory of how social media shapes uncivil behavior. And then secondarily, try to develop some solutions to kind of try to counter these human, all too human tendencies from the bottom up. Let me just press you on a, on a couple of those things, because uh, one of the things I often think about is, um, you know, if you were staring down at the planet from the moon, you know, it might be reasonable to kind of observe that some of these things don't have too much of an effect, you know, in the bigger picture, if we're looking at uh, large scale data or, you know, large scale analysis of, of, of social media. But if I'm standing on the street in Texas in the middle of a protest um, that's been convened by the IRA with both sides in attendance at each other's throats, or if I'm watching what's unfolding on January 6th, it's hard to kind of separate the evidence before my eyes that social media has led to something uh, untoward. Um, so I don't know, it, methodologically or intellectually, how do you kind of separate the anecdotal and the event-driven stuff from that large-scale analysis? Yeah, this is exactly why I think we need a new analogy. And this is why I called the book, you know, Breaking the Social Media Prism. So the social media prism is the idea that, you know, social media reflects back to us a, a very distorted view of reality. You know, we will always, uh, you know, harp on the most extreme parts of the continuum and, and moderation and, and moderates in general will seem pretty much invisible. We've looked at this with data, um, something like 75% of tweets about politics are created by about six or 7% of Twitter users. And these people have, for the most part, extreme views. Meanwhile, the average Twitter user never talks about politics. And so what we're seeing, you know, reflected through this distortion created by, you know, what I call the social media prism is, you know, really obviously exaggerating extremism and, and muting moderation. So I think, you know, yes, there are absolutely examples. January 6th is a great one um, where we, we see how uh, social media can mobilize e extremists. And, and I write a lot about that in the book, too, um, you know, how, how this, can, this can really create momentum. On the other hand, it's a totally different thing to say that social media alone is causing this. And I think that's where a lot of the blame is being cast right now. And I think that's dangerous because we don't understand broader societal context that's shaping political polarization and also the individual level, social psychological factors that are driving polarization as people interact with each other on social media. Then I think we're really going to not only get a distorted view of, of the problem, but we're going to come up with the wrong solutions too. If you were listening to the congressional testimony last week on Capitol Hill, you heard Mark Zuckerberg make an argument that doesn't sound entirely dissimilar from what you're saying right now. Is he off the hook? Definitely not off the hook. I mean, I would I would never go that far. We've seen, you know, leaked information that that's suggestive that Facebook has, has been trying to look at this stuff. And, um, you know, we've seen, you know, and, and, and not just Facebook, we've seen, you know, other platforms embroiled in this type of controversy. So again, I would never say they were blameless. And, and I do think platforms have a role to play, even if an algorithm is creating a small effect and it's easy to fix, yeah, then let's fix it. The problem is, I think, you know, nobody can see what's going on. There's no evidence. And there is where I really put blame on the company, the lack of transparency. You know, Facebook employs dozens and dozens, maybe even hundreds now of, of really talented social scientists, you know, who are doing really great work. They used to share that work publicly, and, and that's really dropped off lately. And so those of us on the outside can only kind of try to peek in and see what's going on. 
And in the meantime, this creates a massive vacuum, you know, and nobody really knows what's going on. So of course, speculation is going to rise up to the top, speculation by tech leaders and speculation by politicians who are, again, very, very often self-interested. And I would say for the first time, we saw politicians really take on the idea of the business model and what they refer to as surveillance advertising or one or, one or more of the uh, representatives last week used that term. And this focus on uh, radicalization, extremism, polarization came out of the mouths of multiple representatives in, in many different ways. Do you, do you feel that lawmakers have gone too far in, in their critique or where do you think the balance is? Well, I just want to see some actual evidence. I, you know, I'd like to see actual evidence that, that, you know, that involves real social media users. So in, in this book, one of the things that, that I discovered is that people can just be profoundly different online and off. And, and, and again, this is the power of the social media prism to distort what we see, but it also distorts how people act. I think I can provide maybe a unique lens onto extremism because we were able to um, both talk to people. We did interviews over time uh, for several hours with a large group of people. Then we also surveyed them and then we followed them online. And so we're able to compare you know, the person that people present themselves as on, on social media and the person they are offline. And, you know, there's several cases that stick out, but the one that sticks out most for me is this guy I'll call Ray. And Ray, you know, when we spoke with him, he's like the most civil, you know, even deferential guy goes out of his way to say, you know, people online are just way out of control. They are, you know, feeding each other's vitriol. And like, I try to avoid politics altogether, right? Then we linked this data that we had collected about this guy with his Twitter data. And it turns out this guy is just the biggest troll on the internet. Some of the most reprehensible stuff I've ever seen. And I've been studying this stuff for 10 years. Um, you know, meme after meme um, depicting, you know, Democratic leaders like Nancy Pelosi and, and, you know, use your imagination the worst way. And so the question is, like, how does this kind of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde transformation happen? And there, I think, you know, those are the types of data points we need. But we need more than the story of one person. We need to be able to put it in a broader societal context. And that's where, again, I think, you know, the chief role of legislative reform should be to create that data. You know, if once we know the data, we can answer questions like, are algorithms really radicalizing people? Or on the conservative side, is social media really censoring uh, Republican voices more than Democratic voices. This might be, you know, somewhat ironically, one of the few places where there's, you know, opportunity for bipartisanship. So one of the things that's become clear about Facebook's approach to this issue is that they are referring to outside research. You know, Nick Clegg in this uh, widely shared Medium post yesterday um, had a section on polarization. It refers to multiple bits of research uh, around it uh, from Stanford, from Harvard, from Pew and the Reuters Institute. We know from BuzzFeed reporting that Facebook has prepared an internal manual or memo for its employees to talk about the issue of polarization. Mm -hmm. And yet in both the Clegg piece and what we know of that memo from Ryan Mack and Craig Silverman, they never refer to their own internal research. And yet we see that when employees leave Facebook, they often will point to the fact that they were aware of research that was suggesting that the platform was in fact increasing polarization. So I don't know, what do you think that they're looking at there? Yeah, I think the big problem is, you know, there's an optics issue here. We've had efforts, you know, uh, a lot of people don't know about Social Science One, but Social Science One was an effort by some, some leading academics, Harvard and Stanford, to try to create an opportunity for academics like me to, to go into Facebook and get data. And the original idea was amazing. The idea was that there would be an independent panel of academic experts who reviewed requests to do research on Facebook with Facebook data, including experiments, and that this would be vetted by the experts and the experts alone and no one inside the, the company. Unfortunately, as far as I can tell, that that didn't happen and, and is unlikely to happen. What has happened is Facebook's begun to share one data set that describes kind of who clicks on URLs. And, and that's, you know, you can do some stuff with that. For example, you can see, you know, how many Republicans aged 18 to 30 were looking at Breitbart in the, in the month of April in, in 2019. And, and that's a great data point. But what we really need to know, we need to get inside the guts of platforms and understand how they work. You know, we need to, we need to experiment on core features of the platforms. 
And one of the things that we've been trying to do in the polarization lab, and I've been trying to, and I discuss in this new book, is a platform that we created for scientific research because we basically gave up. We said, you know, look, the experiments we want to run, it's just not going to happen. You know, it's too much risk to Facebook in terms of PR, in terms of legal stuff. And, you know, after all, they have an obligation to their users, right? We, they can't like, suddenly make Facebook anonymous to see what would happen if we if we made Facebook anonymous, right? But yet, you know, a lot of the research suggests that's something we should be looking at. So we're trying to kind of create a new a new path, create a, a social media platform for scientific research, pay people to use it like we'd pay people to do studies. And then we, the researchers, can turn on and off different features of social media, try to figure out which ones are most polarizing, and also control how people are kind of brought into contact with each other. So you've also built a bunch of apps and Bots and tools. They've got great names, Trollometer, Tweetiology, Echo Chamber, Explorer, the Polarization Pen Pals, which I think I'd quite like to try. <laughs> These are similar to, you know, it, sound, it seems to me tools and platforms we've seen from other researchers, perhaps the NYU Ad Observatory or things the markup has done. How do you come up with these and you know, how often do you roll one out? What's the life, life cycle on one? We've been working on these for about two or three years now. And one thing that's a little different about our effort is we don't just want to show this, the, the disparities. So a lot of blue feed, red feed was a tool that allowed you to see what, you know, Republicans are seeing versus, uh, you know, Democrats are seeing. Um, you know, these were efforts to kind of promote awareness about, for example, like what ads, you know, people might be seeing on Facebook. And that's great. But um, we really wanted to try to change behavior, get empower people like the social media users to actually change things. Because I've become pessimistic about the, the prospect for transformational top-down change. But I also think that the key driver of polarization is, is after all the people. So that's super depressing. We are all part of this. But it also means that we collectively have some potential to transform that. And so these tools are really directed at, at social media users to do really two or three things. The first thing is to become aware of the social media prism. So... Um, these tools will help you, like the trollometer will help you try to figure out if you are interacting with a troll. Um, and we do that by um, training, you know, fancy machine learning models on the data that we've collected over years from thousands of, of social media users. And we look at who actually engages in uncivil behavior and political trolling. And then we use these to calibrate the tools. So the idea is to promote a little more awareness about the possibility that the extremists that most people are interacting with might actually not be representative members of the other side. And that at scale, if more people become aware of, of this false polarization, this false sense of polarization that we have, then the hope is that they might not feed the trolls more, right? So, so on the one hand, you know, let's, let's try to avoid extremists. Let's, get, let's empower people to avoid extremists. But on the other hand, we wanna also empower people to understand how their own behavior contributes to this. So some of our tools will read in your, your Twitter feed and compare you to a, a broad sample of Twitter users to help you figure out what, are, what about you? Are you an extremist? Are you in the middle? And, and maybe give people a little more self-awareness about how they themselves might contribute. Now, we don't think people are going to use the tool and say, oh, I'm an extremist, so I'm going to tone it down, right? What we really need is more moderation because, you know, the data is clear, you know, most, most people are moderates and most moderates don't talk, right? So we need to boost moderates. And so the second set of tools is really about boosting moderates and even more than that, creating an incentive for moderation. So right now, the incentives, in my view, are all, all messed up. We have every incentive to say something sensational. We get, you know, easiest way to get likes on Twitter is to say something anti-Trump or anti-Biden, right? There's just a, you know, an army of people that will just chime in and, uh, and start liking that kind of content, right? What we really need to incentivize is people who actually produce content that appeals to a diverse group of people. Now, that could be about politics. That's, that's the way I conceive it, but it could be, you know, about demographics in general, right? That would actually make social media more effective at, at, at creating consensus. And so one way that we try to do that is to create a kind of status around moderate, moderate behavior. And so we have, for example, a bipartisanship leaderboard that ranks prominent elected officials, journalists, advocacy groups, and we kind of rank them according to how much their tweets resonate with both sides. Not to embarrass you, uh, you know, on your own show here, but you are on that list. And so you're doing something right. Um, we, we could take a look at the data to figure out exactly what it is. But, but you know, you're, you're in the minority, right? Like not everybody is resonating across party lines. In fact, most people aren't. But we want people like you 
to do more of that. We want to boost you and tone down the extremists. So we have the leaderboard and then we have bots. We have two bots named Poly, uh, Polarization Lab, haha. Uh, these bots retweet people on the bipartisanship leaderboard. So if you're a liberal, you can follow uh, one of the polys that will retweet conservatives who our research shows have resonated with liberals. And then another poly that does the same for, uh, for conservatives. So, you know, these are all tools, you know, are they going to create the transformational change in and of themselves? Of course not. Um, this is about nudging people to become more self-aware, to try to recognize, you know, that moderation is out there. You just, you just got to find it. And, and, you know, at a minimum, just create something like a new kind of civic education. You know, we can talk all we want about self-awareness, but what we really need to do is, is make it habitual. And, and that's where the, the tech comes in. I think, you know, we, exposing yourself to a bot makes this like habitual. You know, it doesn't mean all, it, like there's a lot of effort involved or, you know, looking at the bipartisanship leaderboard and, and seeing where you're at. That, that's kind of a, a, a simple thing to do. We hope. You draw a, a distinction in the book, I guess, between polarization and extremism, even as you have suggested here, you know, that you might, you might not see a proven connection between social media environment and polarization, you do see the social media prism driving extremism. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you just touch on that and a couple of points that are in chapter five? Yeah, definitely. So we just have the wrong model of, of why people use social media. The, the conventional model, and this is something you see in, in Mark Zuckerberg, Jack Dorsey, other tech leaders, is that social media is really a competition of ideas. We go on there and in its, in its best you know, form, it's really about people deliberating about what's true. And at the end, the truth kind of rises up and, and you know, we're all better for it, right? Way back in 2000, you know, a lot of people thought that was possible, right? And now it's so clear as day that that's not what's happening. And that's not why people use social media. Yes, we might, you know, get a little bit of information here, but, but really what social media is doing is a lot, a lot more profound. I think it's actually beginning to, to shape the way that we understand ourselves and the world around us and, and, and the way we create our identities. And, you know, we know now that identity is so central to polarization, right? The us-them mentality. What we don't know a lot about is how social media shapes that us-them behavior. Sociologists have known for, you know, a century that every day we present a different version of ourselves. We observe how other people react, knowingly or unknowingly. And then we cultivate those identities that make us feel good or good about ourselves. They give us status or whatever it is. This isn't necessarily a conscious process, but we all do it all the time, right? And so the really interesting question and the one that fascinates me is, you know, what is social media doing to this process? And I think it's doing two things. The first thing is we have unprecedented flexibility in what type of identity we can present, right? Um, you know, I, I could be a middle-aged female breakdancer on, on social media, right? But, but anybody who meets me in person would, would laugh at that, right? That's one thing, right? And then the second thing is that we have these, you know, powerful new tools to monitor what other people think of us, like counts, follower counts, and so on. And of course, these things are profoundly misleading, right? So, you know, if we, if we are getting, suddenly getting lots of likes, you know, when we say something anti-Trump or anti-Biden, very few people are thinking like, well, who's liking this stuff and, you know, and why? It's just that, that kind of sense of validation that especially for people like that guy, Ray, I was talking about the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde guy, you know, this guy is, is a uh, middle-aged divorced man who lives with his mother. You know, like there's not a lot going on for Ray on social media, though. He's getting a kind of micro celebrity and status. And, and yes, it's artificial. And yes, it's other extremists liking his stuff. But for this guy, it's actually really important. It keeps him going. Now, if we if we take that as our assumption that social media is really not about a competition of ideas, but it's about a competition of our identities, then it really helps us understand the growth of extremism people like Ray, but also why moderates don't want to get engaged. Chapter seven, maybe I'll give you one of these kind of congressional yes, no questions. Uh, chapter seven, should I delete my account? Should I delete my account? Yes, no. <laughs> no. Okay. And it pains me to say that, you know, <laughs> it pains me like, I, you know, that, the irony of me writing this book is like, I'm not, I'm not the hugest social media user and I see all the negative and I, you know, I, I can see how um, that idea is set up. You know, that we just all need to go, you know, bowling together again. We all need to like, you know, uh, get outside together, right? Kumbaya. Like, great. That would be wonderful. But, but when we actually scrutinize the delete your account campaigns, we see a few interesting things. So first, you know, yes, delete Facebook trended briefly. And, you know, lots of Elon Musk, Will Ferrell, like famous people, you know, deleted their accounts. 
But, you know, in the book, I describe discovering that one week later, the most popular search term or one of the most popular search terms on Google was how to undelete your Facebook account, right? So people came running back. Why did they come running back? It's because social media is fulfilling for us this, this human instinct, right? We all need to know what other people think of us constantly. I mean, some people more than others. And obviously some people care a lot more about what happens on social media than others. And that's important. The addiction isn't just, you know, shiny lights and cute cat memes. It's really about uh, a really hyper-efficient way of monitoring our social environment. You know, that's where I think we're never going to get completely away from social media, especially because, you know, obviously young people online in unprecedented numbers, but then also in the political space. You know, a recent study just came out of Harvard suggests that the vast majority of Republicans and Democrats live in areas where they're basically never going to encounter someone from the other party, you know, so, and, and certainly under COVID, right? These trends are only getting worse, like it or not. And, and, and again, I don't really like it. Uh, you know, social media is probably going to be one of the last places where cross-party political deliberation is possible. Um, so the question is kind of like, I think, you know, how can we make it better? Um, how can we make it possible? Um, rather than, you know, should we delete our accounts or not? And that's where you end the book, right? On a better social media. And I presume you work with students on this question as well. What do you think once the dust is settled, you know, 10 years from now, what do you think tomorrow's social media networks look like? Yeah, it's the million dollar question. And I think like, it's important to have that historical perspective, right? I'm always telling my students, you know, there used to be this thing called MySpace, you know, and, and like, they have no clue, right? What, what MySpace was, I barely understand TikTok. So there you have it. Like there's, there's always going to be, you know, a, a generational displacement. But also if we take the long view, something comes along and replaces the dominant platform every three, four or five years. Even Facebook, you know, had to buy Instagram to, to stave off that surge, right? You know, so is Facebook going to go away tomorrow? No, of course not. You know, it's got amazing market power. It's got, you know, it's, it, it's not going, going away anytime soon. But are there a lot of people dissatisfied with social media who would be open to trying a new social media platform? I mean, absolutely, in my view. I mean, you know, and there's going to be a lot that fail, right? The graveyard of, of social media is, is, is now getting heavily populated. And, you know, who knows what will happen with Parler or, you know, Trump's platform or all these kinds of things. But it's clear that people want something better. Um, so, yeah, the question is, how do we make that? And, and who makes it? You know, one of the chapters you've got, chapter six, focuses on the moderate uh, and how they're muted by social media. Yeah. So let me tell you the story of a woman I'll call Sarah Rendon. You know, Sarah is a moderately conservative woman. She's from New York. She's half Puerto Rican. Her dad was a cop. She's married to a guy who owns a gun and, and likes to shoot at a local range, but, you know, responsible gun owner, very moderate views, reads the New York Times, reads the New Yorker, uh, even if she doesn't agree with it all the time. And so one night, late at night, she tells us she's on Twitter and the NRA posts something and a bunch of people are piling on the NRA for, you know, being generally terrible. And she, uh, you know, she says, well, you know, hey, responsible gun owners like my husband, you know, um, you know, deserve respect, blah, blah, blah. Right. Within minutes, people online had discovered that she had kids by looking at her Twitter feed. And someone says, I hope your kids find your gun and shoot you, you know, and, and like, that, you know, that's pretty extreme, right? Like, you know, it, it freaked her out. Like she deleted her Twitter account right away. You know, she, she kind of ran offline, you know, she, you know, she changed the locks on her house. I mean, she was that scared, right? The tragedy is for, for me, is like getting to know this person. Like, this is a person with really nuanced and important views about things like race and policing. Our debate about race and policing right now is just probably as polarized as, as any other. We need people like her to, to, you know, to, to find middle ground. If there is middle ground, it, it's going to be coming from people like her. And yet, because of experiences like this, she is completely invisible on, on, online in terms of politics. You, know, you won't ever see her talking about politics. It turns out the story of this woman, Sarah, is, is the typical story. The number one reason people get harassed online now, according to a recent Pew report, is for, for political views. Everybody has, a lot of people have an experience like Sarah. And if they don't, they might have an uncle or an aunt or an in-law who doesn't share their political views. And for them, you know, talking about politics on social media just makes Thanksgiving dinner even, even worse than it would be, right? There's all sorts of offline dynamics that are shaping what's going on online. And I think the single biggest problem is people like her have no incentive to put out moderate views on social media. They're only going to get her in trouble, not only with the other side, but with her own party. You know, if she says, 
hey, yeah, we should have background checks, which is something she believes, by the way, or we shouldn't have all assault weapon ban, by the way. Guess who, you know, jumps right on her? It's right. It's the extreme right right away. For people like Sarah, there's just no incentive to engage. And so thinking about how we can get people like her involved in, in the public discussion, I think is really paramount. Are you optimistic uh, or pessimistic ultimately uh, on this question? I have been described as a dystopian idealist. I'm cautiously optimistic only because we know that the scale of the problem seems a lot worse than it is. And we've known that for a long time, by the way, you know, false polarization, our tendency to exaggerate the ideological extremity of the other side and downplay the ideological extremity of our own side. This has been documented since 1980. It's just something that we do. And social media has kind of set this into hyperdrive. So my hope is that if we can, you know, develop tools to counteract these tendencies, and it's going to be a multi-pronged strategy, right? It's going to be users becoming more aware of their behavior and how it contributes to polarization or their lack of behavior for people like Sarah. Um, then from the top down, it's going to be about creating different status incentives that, you know, incentivize people whose views resonate with diverse groups of people instead of those who are only kind of preaching to the choir. So, uh, yeah, I'm, you know, cautiously optimistic. Um, we've got really, really smart people, um, you know, just jonesing to get a hold of this data. And I think, you know, the ultimate solution would be a purely evidence-based platform that could adapt. We know that Facebook is, is running uh, experiments internally and other platforms are running experiments internally. Um, but there's no, you know, there's no oversight, there's no public discourse about what's working and what's not, and, and we're not seeing the data. So, you know, again, platforms can be more transparent with the data, create uh, a better opportunity for everyone to figure out how we, how we solve this problem, which, you know, I personally think we'll be talking about for, for many, many years. Chris Bale, thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks so much for having me. Last week, congressional representatives, press tech CEOs, including Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, and Alphabet CEO Sundar Pichai on extremism and disinformation. Multiple lawmakers referred to the deadly shooting in Atlanta that targeted Asian spa workers earlier this month and the rise in hate speech and crimes targeting Asian Americans. I spoke with Vivian Chang, a civic engagement manager for the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance, about steps her organization is taking to confront disinformation in the communities it works with including working with the Disinfo Defense League, a coalition that trains civic groups to tackle the growing problem of misinformation and disinformation. Here's Vivian. My name is Vivian Chang. I work at APALA, which is the Asian Pacific American Labor Alliance. We are a labor constituency group under the AFL-CIO. So we sit at the intersection of labor unions, worker centers, and Asian American and Pacific Islander workers, APIs. My role is the civic engagement manager. So that's all of our elections, census. So you are part of the disinformation or disinfo defense league. Yeah, we actually just joined earlier this year. So we're pretty we're newer to disinformation defense league, but we're really interested in you know, highlighting all the different ways that AAPI communities are targeted by disinformation. So the coalition, the DDL, is really um, helpful and important in terms of monitoring what's out there, helping people create community responses, like stemming the massive tide of disinformation that's targeting our communities. I guess maybe bring me up to speed on what the last sort of year has been like. I mean, clearly you had a president who started to use racist rhetoric early on in the pandemic, that's just got worse. And now we're beginning to see, and it's not lost to me that it's sort of like, as people begin to move around more, as people begin to encounter one another more, we're beginning to see that spill over into physical violence. Um, what, what's it been like following these issues for the last year? It's been tough, you know, because I mean, the way we've described it sometimes is a pandemic within a pandemic. So AAPI communities were facing the same health problems, everything like that. And then we're also facing anti-Asian racism, you know, loss of business. Some of people's first reactions to hearing about COVID in, in other countries 
was to stop eating at Chinese restaurants. And that I think shows just like how tied all of that is together that, I mean, and we're seeing it now in the response actually to the Atlanta shootings, people are saying, okay, I want to support Asian American communities. Let's order Chinese takeout. <laughs> so it's, uh, you know, it's tough because I think like a lot of these issues are not new at all. You know, I think fortunately some narratives that are usually overlooked are being lifted up in the wake of the shootings in terms of recognizing that, you know, anti-Asian racism is as old as Asian Americans being in this country. Like there's the 1800s Page Act, which prohibited Chinese American women from coming here because it deemed them all as prostitutes. Um, but really it was also about just lowering the number of immigrants who would be here, right? If you don't have folks to marry, you don't have folks to make a family with, you're going to go back to, you know, China, everything like that. We still see that today, right? And in how, you know, the government talks about, especially Republicans talk about immigration, it's all about like cutting people off from their families and making sure they can't be here, making sure the incentives are not here to stay. So yeah, it's just been really heavy. I mean, <laughs> like how it's been dealing with it is, I think every community goes through this when their community members are victimized, but it's like the times when you want to just like, grieve you just want to mourn together and you know you have to be answering media requests and you have to be responding to like just a ton of different things all at once do you feel that the the media has handled this issue well or um do you work with folks in media to kind of help them handle this issue well or what's been your approach to that particular problem uh in a lot of ways it has not been handled well i think that it's a massive uphill battle because, you know, and there's like a lot of different angles, you know? So like when we talk about media, I think a lot of folks think traditional media, news media, you know, and that is an institution that's overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly white, overwhelmingly male. It's like, you know, and it costs so much money to be able to get an unpaid internship, to stick around in the industry, have precarious working conditions. So the types of people who are writing these stories are often like, more well off they're you know disconnected from these issues so that's first first cut first barrier like why that's a difficult and the next is like newsrooms you know don't have as many of those like public editor positions they aren't you know hiring like as diverse as they need to be and so when we look at who can write about a story with like a lens of cultural competency like the it's very like scant that population and then on top of that you know the api community literally spans like dozens of countries, dozens of languages. So like sometimes there's one, you know, Asian American reporter on staff, but they're trying to talk about Vietnamese communities. They're trying to talk about Chinese Americans who've been here for multiple generations, South Asians, everything like that. And the recognition of the really intense diversity of the APEC community isn't there. And we saw that a lot, you know, in the wake of Atlanta. The first instinct from a lot of news organizations was to just repeat what the police had said, which is problematic on its own thing. And then to really deny that it was like fueled by race to apply these, to say like, oh, well, he said it was a bad day. He said all these things. And that comes from a lack of recognition of what racism looks like in this country in a lot of different ways. In the last few days, we've heard testimony from Mark Zuckerberg and Jack Dorsey and Sundar uh, Pichai from Alphabet on Capitol Hill about extremism um, and disinformation and other kind of related issues. Um, do you feel like you're hearing that the social media networks understand these issues or handling them? Uh, what are your communities telling you about, about that? Either they don't understand it or they're willfully ignoring the problem. That's what we're seeing because there is so, so much disinformation, so much bad faith arguments, and literal targeting of people to persuade them of things that aren't true. Um, so in terms of like our communities right now, like, again, you know, really, there's a lot of instances or a lot of really, you know, uh, recent examples post Atlanta, but um, different community organizations across the country, Asian American community organizations, they're getting targeted by trolls. You know, people who are just posing a lot of like either really you know, pro-fascist things, or they're just trying to re-traumatize and re-trigger the people who are trying to help communities, or, you know, just your plain old harassment on the regular from people who don't want to see Asian American communities coming together. The tech platforms are so reticent to address that, you know. Usually what we hear is, oh, report it, report it for harassment. Okay, so, 
you know, you report someone over and over, it barely gets removed. And then what do you do when it's like hundreds of accounts, you know, when it's clearly there's like some coordination behind it, you know, these, these platforms aren't offering more tools to like go beyond that. That's kind of what we're seeing. And then in terms of, you know, disinformation or like false narratives, that is also, you know, hugely propagated. I think there was a study that showed like the source for, you know, half of all disinformation was like just a handful of pages. So it's clearly something that these platforms have the power to crack down on and to really like restrict, which would help people who are like being traumatized and, you know, being harassed out of this work that they're doing to really try to help communities heal. So how do you work with your chapters on this? I mean, you've got kind of local chapters all across the country. Do you find that, and are there examples of, of efforts that they've taken at an, at a local level to address these things? Yeah, definitely. I mean, for us, it's like we our national headquarters is in D.C. and we work with a lot of national community groups for, you know, um, coalitions. And so we try to basically share that information out. You know, what are we hearing inside the Beltway? Like what's what policy looks like? You know, just in general, what do other communities see that our Apollo members might not see? And then in terms of response, yeah, our, I think I shared the story, like our Massachusetts chapter, um, there's a lot of uh, older immigrants, a lot of folks who are, you know, still predominantly Chinese speaking or Tuisini speaking rather than English speaking. So they get their news information from like WeChat or from outlets, you know, that don't write in English. And there's literal like right-wing funded disinformation targeting those, those platforms. And it spans the gamut. You know, it's not all elections related. There was a lot of false information around Black Lives Matter and even before that around the Hong Kong protests. So our chapter there has continuously done member education um, around these issues that we care about because we know that a lot of these folks share common interests with like, you know, seeking housing for all, rent control, like better wages for workers. And so like that comes with coming with that is like racial justice and things like that. And it's not that you know, folks are opposed to it, but they hear all these literally false stories of like, you know, for example, like around the Hong Kong protests, a lot of members had heard stories about protesters, like biting the fingers off of cops in Hong Kong, which is, you know, completely false. Um, but it was just super, super predominant on the platform. And so as a chapter, they had to have conversations about this is what really happened. This is what the fake news looks like. This is how you can tell it's fake, things like that. And like, what's great is, you know, that's a chapter that really has those continuous relationships with members because they're advocating on a wide variety of fronts. So it isn't just like drop in, you know, hey, that's fake. Okay, bye. See you later. <laughs> so one of the things that I'm always struck by now is the extent to which it has become the job of so many local community organizers and groups mm -hmm. to essentially confront rumors and disinformation and even coordinated, targeted harassment online. Is it your view that this has become some significant part of what community groups or organizers are doing um, as opposed to what it was in the past? Um, it just strikes me that it's a, I don't know, almost an externality of the existence of these platforms that so much effort now is going into just dealing with the constant flow of raw nonsense and sewage that, that's coming across them. Yeah, no, you're you're exactly right. I mean, Apollo, we joined, you know, the Disinformation Defense League earlier this year because it's just the, the problem of disinformation isn't going away and it's become so large. So that even though we're trying to every day fight for workers' rights, we're trying to build up, you know, leadership in the movement and all these other good things, we also have to be just looking at what Facebook isn't doing to prevent people from you know, being targeted by right-wing outlets and things like that. Or we do a lot of work around elections and we're always faced, you know, more recently now with voters who are like, oh, I heard this person's a communist or I heard X, Y, Z. So instead of being able to have a conversation that starts with why do you care? Like, what do you, what issues do you care about? Or like, how does your job, you know, impact your life, right? Those are those like bread and butter issues you want to talk about. Instead, we have to like address the latest rumor that people are hearing um, so you're exactly right. And the burden is falling, falling on the community groups who are the ones who are actually communicating with folks and wanting to see things improve. You know, I think 
it's such a one-way valve that like all of these, all this fake news, all everything like comes down to us. And then we're the ones who have to bear the burden to try to address it. So as a communicator, clearly your work with the Disinfo Defense League, you're looking for rubrics, frameworks, tips, ideas about how to, to do these things. Um, are there other sources of information that you're looking to for that kind of thing right now? Have you had to make yourself a disinformation expert? Great question. I mean, like what we really appreciate is we're we're part of a national coalition called NCAPA, which is the National Council of Asian Pacific Americans. And they basically are an umbrella organization for a lot of national groups like ours. So they help with like messaging. They're also monitoring this disinformation, everything like that. So that's a big source for us. I think the tough part is always like, you know, what's great is, you know, there's different groups or organizations to plug into around like census and elections and all things like that. But there's a lot of in between that doesn't fall into those categories that people are, you know, getting, getting targeted for. And so there's just a big gap that we're still seeing in terms of, you know, for example, uh, COVID vaccine. There's a lot of rumors around that. There's a lot of information that isn't true, but there's not as much recognition of the need to address that, nor is there recognition of just the, the like huge barriers to access for Asian Americans who don't speak English, who have, you know, lack access to the internet. We're dealing with just that first barrier of helping people schedule appointments and find out their eligibility. And then there's like a whole other separate barrier of people being afraid of it or not sure, being not sure like how it works or what to do after you get the vaccine. Yeah. I think we always piece it together from the information that is out there and from coalitions like disinformation defense league, but it's, it's tough. There's not coordinated thing. There's not a lot of investment in, in these issues. Yeah. Have, have the last few weeks changed the way you're behaving personally? Anything that's sort of like a realization for you as an individual? I don't think so. I mean, I will say Apollo has gotten a lot more attention than we have in the past. And that's really great because like there is a lot of good stuff that we want people to know about, you know, and API workers are often last on the list. You know, when people think of Asian Americans, if they think of them, it sometimes starts with the food. And then maybe random cultural things they know about, right? And then maybe representation in media on down the line. But thinking of Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders as workers, people in the movement, people who have the same kinds of needs around, you know, access to a union, good wages, all of that, like that is not on anybody's mind usually. So I think that's just been really fortunate. But then with that increased attention also just feels like making sure that people who want to take action are, you know, connecting with community organizations and not just feeling like, let me just go out here and I'll fix everything because you really can't. These problems are so longstanding. You know, I don't think it's changed our work. It's made our work even more, I think, urgent or even more of a priority because we're really thinking about in our in our work, like in our membership, there's people who are leaders in their community, you know, and we want to make sure that they're able to be equipped with like everything they need to talk about these issues, to address it, to bring it up with lawmakers who right now, a lot of them are looking for an easy solution, which looks like more money for police, which looks like, you know, designating things a hate crime. And those are two things that don't really get at the problem at all. You know, for us, it's like, okay, we've always talked about like, what is that long-term work, right? If you're in the labor movement, you know, it's it's not a solution that comes tomorrow. I think for us, the change is just like, okay, how do we keep doing that? You know, keep getting that message out. Yeah. And I think personally, I did, again, same thing, not really much change. It's like interesting. I think being in a community where suddenly there's a lot of attention when it happened, it really just reminded me of the, you know, mother Emanuel AME shooting tree of life, you know, the Walmart shooting in El Paso. And I was like, okay, like I have people who are checking in now and I know how that feels to be on the receiving end of it, but it's not like, it doesn't feel great. And it also just, I'm like, I was already doing this work, you know, it's, and suddenly all these other people want to say like, what do I do to help? And I'm like, well, here's something I wrote a year ago, or here's a project that's already in the making. So how do we plug in, you know? I wish you the best with, with, with all of what you're doing. And I hope that, um, to some extent, as you say, some of the attention comes with it, a recognition that there are allies in this fight that perhaps haven't thought of themselves as such before. No, that's, that's definitely true. Well, well, thank you, Vivian.
Our last interview today is with Kieran Levitt, an Edmonton-based political reporter for the Toronto Star. Kieran has been covering Facebook's relationship to the Canadian government. This week, Facebook executives testified in Parliament, and I got to catch up with Kieran about what happened. My name is Kieran Levitt. I'm a reporter with the Toronto Star, cover federal politics in Canada and focus a lot on the intersection of government regulation and big tech. So this week you had testimony in the Canadian Parliament from Facebook. Can you tell me what happened? There was a committee hearing this week between Facebook and uh, members of Parliament from uh, most of the political parties that are represented. And it was the Heritage Committee, which has been studying government regulations in Canada as it pertains to Facebook we saw Kevin Chan, who is the is, is the head of Facebook Canada, come and testify. And there wasn't a ton out of the committee hearing uh, that we weren't expecting. I'll say that. We've seen this conversation between big tech companies like Facebook and the Canadian government for some time. The Canadian government and the Liberal Party that's in power now is very interested in regulating big tech companies whether that's a digital services tax or amending the Broadcasting Act. They have plans to put in place media compensation regulations. Uh, there's, there's regulations that are planned around regulating illegal content that ends up on digital platforms like Facebook and Google. And so there's all these things that are planned right now. And they're all of these sort of nebulous ideas at this point. As far as actual legislation, we haven't seen a ton. Obviously, the MPs at the committee this week were very interested in what happened in Australia, which I'm sure your listeners are very aware of, where Facebook cut off news sharing in response to the uh, news media code that was being enshrined there. So uh, lots of ground was covered. Yeah, in a nutshell, that's kind of what went down this week. It doesn't sound uh, too dissimilar from the state of the conversation in the U.S. where um, there are continued hearings and yet we haven't yet seen you know that piece of legislation that will potentially move forward. Um, you did mention there were some testy exchanges in your reporting uh, between Chan and the MPs. Uh, what were the sort of exact sticking points? The main one was probably when a liberal MP, Anthony Housefather, was trying to get answers from Kevin Chan about revenues in Canada. So he was interested in finding out about ad revenue that Facebook collects in Canada specifically. And he had some other questions too. The main thing that he seemed uh, miffed about was that the committee had invited Mark Zuckerberg to come and testify. Mark Zuckerberg, somewhat infamously in Canada, does not testify at committees here. He's been invited several times. He's been summonsed, I think, at least twice. I know it, for sure, recently, the committee hearing that happened on Monday, they had summonsed uh, Mark Zuckerberg to testify. And that's actually a legal thing. Um, Parliament of Canada has... Uh, legal powers in the sense where if they summon somebody to come, you actually have to come. It's le you're legally required to. The, the weird thing about it, I mean, obviously Mark Zuckerberg is an American, so he's in the United States. Should he ever, you know, touch down in Canada and physically be here, legally he's required to come and appear at the committee. Anyway, it was a, a sticking point um, for Facebook and, and the MPs. Like the, Mark Zuckerberg obviously did not come. Kevin Chan came. Uh, and so Anthony Housefather, this liberal MP who was trying to get answers about revenues and uh, uh, stuff like that, could Kevin Chan could not answer his questions. So uh, it was problematic for uh, these members of parliament who want to study what government regulations would look like in their uh, gathering of information which they do through these hearings, they weren't able to get that. 
they were, or they weren't able to get all of that from, from Mr. Chan. So there was a few times during the testimony where you could tell Anthony House's father was frustrated by that. You know, uh, he was not particularly happy that uh, for, you know, the second time in a row and after multiple invitations, the actual CEO of this company who is going to be, um, you know, potentially heavily impacted by this country's regulations did not show up. And that's consistent with, you know, other requests from parliaments, democracies uh, elsewhere in the world, other Commonwealth nations, in fact, called on Zuckerberg to testify. Um, and he's either refused or sent, you know, proxies or, or uh, underlings. You also, you know, have reported that uh, there are other considerations around regulations for the big tech companies in, in Canada. And I understand there's a, a senator who wants to use Canada's copyright law to make Facebook and Google pay for news. So a similar kind of prospect as what's happened in Australia, perhaps. Yeah, so um, this conservative senator had put forward a private members thing. It was uh, for just for context, Senate bills almost never get passed into law. So, you know, it, it was sort of seen as his way of putting out an idea um, because there's this conversation happening in Canada right now as to how do we, um, how does the government ensure that Facebook and Google are paying for news? So his proposal had to do with copyright law. <clears throat> My reporting on that sort of suggested that it's very unfeasible in Canada and all of the signs point to a different system um, outside of the copyright system in Canada. It's just uh, the plans so far have been to do it a little bit differently. Um, so it's unlikely we'll see something under the copyright laws here. You never know, it could happen, but it looks like it's going to be done in a different way. We don't know yet, though. And there is a lot of discussion about the uh, Australian you know, proposal and the idea of essentially giving bargaining power to the media companies. That seems to be the preferred option. Yeah, it seems that way. Again, we haven't seen a ton in terms of concrete proposals from Stephen Gilbeau, who is the Canadian Heritage Minister, who's really leading the charge on this. So I think there is a lot of interest in what Australia has done. And uh, there has been a lot of push from groups who are uh, lobbying in Canada. I should mention the Toronto Star, the newspaper I work for, has been part of those efforts. So, um, but there's groups here that have been pushing for the government to adopt this this model where media companies can band together and collectively negotiate with Google and Facebook, um, much like we saw talked about in Australia. I know that that's a very, uh, that's, that's a big interest here. But, you know, again, in terms of what Canada is actually going to do, the timelines have been a bit fuzzy. We've seen um, a lot of promises around this stuff, not just the news media bargaining, but also, um, online harms, illegal content online regulations. That has been promised for quite some time. And most recently, um, we were told that it would show up before the summer. But uh, again, for, you know, maybe some of your listeners, like, we're facing an election. You know, it's totally speculative of when that's going to happen, but it could happen. You know, I've seen people estimate that it could happen in uh, May or June. Some people think it's more likely to be September, October. Um, so, you know, whether all of these things actually happen before that election, um, it's kind of debatable. But uh, yeah, we'll have to see. I mean, that's kind of consistent also with the states where the platforms often wait out the cycles. It's it's true. I mean, you can talk a really good game um, and and then go into an election. So you also reported um, in kind of an interesting story uh, earlier on about how uh, Facebook you know, potentially even attempted to, to hire folks out of the government. Can you tell folks a little bit about that? Sure. So uh, we first reported, my colleague actually broke the story, Alex Boudelier, that Facebook had circulated a job posting within the Canadian Heritage Department uh, looking, I can't remember the specifics, it was a fairly... Uh, fairly high up position with Facebook Canada. And this, this had been, you know, presumably uh, circulated amongst the department. And, you know, what's a little bit questionable about, questionable about that from people, I think is um, this is the same department that's drawing up regulations for the company. So it's at first, a lot of the opposition parties, the NDP in particular, you know, this didn't smell great. 
And uh, so that was a lot of what the committees and uh, members of parliament on, on various committees began getting very interested in is, well, what's this relationship between um, Facebook and the Canadian government? And it should be noted as well, Kevin Chan, the head of Facebook Canada, he's a former uh, staffer. The person they ended up hiring for the role that they circulated amongst the Canadian Heritage Department was a former government staffer under Stephen Harper, uh, the last Canadian prime minister. And it kind of just speaks to this general thing that you see with every industry, this revolving door between the public and the private sector. It's not like uh, big tech is somehow immune to that. And we've seen multiple instances of it, right? So a lot of it, you know, depends on how you look at it. Is this a perception thing where it may not actually be uh, an issue, like an ethical issue, or, uh, you know, even if it's not, you know, if it's perceived as one, then that's also an issue, right? That was sort of the gist of that. As far as it goes, it seems like um, Facebook is saying when, you know, they circulated this job posting, but the job posting was circulated everywhere. It was a public job posting. They put it on social media. They circulated it all over the place. There's, they, they said they didn't actually interview anybody from Canadian Heritage, the department in question, uh, and they ended up hiring this former conservative. So, that's their take on it. There's been a notable change in the U.S. in terms of just public opinion on tech firms. Um, is it a sort of similar phenomenon happening in Canada or are you aware? I would say yes, in terms of some of the public polling that's been done by various groups. People in Canada are uh, welcoming of regulations around uh, big tech companies. I mean, there, there's no doubt about it. And I think that there is just generally a, a sense that uh, these companies are extremely powerful and uh, the government should should have some sort of regulation there. I've seen specifically polling done on illegal content online and the spread of, of harmful material. And people are, are very in favor of regulating that kind of thing. As I'm sure you're aware, that's one of the big pieces of the government's plans is to regulate illegal content. For a long time, it wasn't clear if they were going to try and regulate online harms, which is like a very different thing than illegal content, because lots of things on the internet are harmful, as I'm sure you know, uh, but they're not necessarily illegal. And regulating that kind of thing, especially a government regulating that kind of a thing is complicated and prickly. So, but they've backed off that. And now they're very focused on illegal stuff like child sexual abuse material, um, hate speech, um, you know, thing, incitements to violence. So these types of things are going to be um, regulated in Canada. But, uh, and in terms of that kind of stuff, yeah, people are in favor of it for sure. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you, you wanted to kind of volunteer? Uh, I think one of, the, one of the ones to watch is the regulation of content. You know, I, I'm not, I know, um, you know, in the United States, there's been a lot of talk section 230 and uh, protections for social media companies. Um, and it seems to me at least that Canada could provide an example for how to start looking at how we regulate some of this stuff. Canada is not known to be a leader <laughs> on doing things like this, um, but you can look to Australia, you can look to even you know France to some extent, look at countries, what they're doing in the EU. Um, but, but also I would say, uh, pay attention to what Canada's doing as well. Like there is a lot of talk about how we regulate big tech companies. And it's particularly interesting because Canada and the US have such a close relationship um, economically and culturally and just longtime allies and neighbors. So it's, uh, there are some additional um, overarching issues there that will be interesting to pay attention to. So, um, you know, if you're interested in, in big tech policy, and I know all of your listeners are, um, definitely keep up with what's happening in Canada. And you, you might see some interesting, innovative ways uh, that uh, governments can start to think about how we tackle these issues around big tech. You might also see some really terrible ideas that, you know, you should totally steer clear from. Uh, we're really just starting to get into the serious conversation in Canada of what that's going to look like. So, Years ago, I worked at The Economist, and The Economist always admires very much Canadian democracy. 
So perhaps they're, you know, I don't know if you feel the relative health of the of Canadian democracy is uh, better than, than what you're seeing below the border at the moment. It's a good question. It's tough to say. Everything feels like it's so uh, fragile now in a lot of ways with, with just what can happen on the internet. There's no question that the United States has come to a bit of a reckoning with its democracy and is just a totally, you know, outside observer. It's, it's been um, at times uh, terrifying to watch what's gone on in the United States, but it's also been at times uh, reassuring. I mean, you've just over the last four or five years, you've seen um, every bit of the American democratic system tested, but you've also seen it withstand, you know, a ton of stuff. Uh, and uh, definitely there's going to be reckonings for years to come about the weakening of certain institutions and how certain parts of the system have been, you know, undermined and curtailed in terms of their power and maybe for better, maybe for worse. And in terms of Canada, I mean, we definitely have seen some trickle over from the United States experience, right? Because I think now, especially, you know, as we talk about big tech and social media platforms and whatnot, there's so much overlap between Americans and Canadians, just culturally, what we pay attention to, the shows we watch, you know, um, the division of right wing, left wing politics is somewhat similar. So there's a lot of overlap there in terms of how people look at the world. And to say that Canada hasn't experienced its own sort of polarization on that front, I think would be a mistake. I think we definitely have seen some, but uh, just with the way that our political system works and the party system, you know, we don't have just like a left wing and a right wing party. Uh, we have quite a few federal parties that um, get, win a lot of different seats. I mean, the, uh, the Bloc Québécois, which is the, uh, the party predominantly in, in uh, Quebec. I mean, they have, I can't remember the exact number, 20 or 30 seats in parliament, something around there. Um, we've got the, the federal NDP. Uh, they are a, a fairly left-wing, pretty far left-wing party. Um, you know, they've got quite a few seats, 20 or 30 as well. The, the liberal government that's in power now, they've got, you know, I don't know, 100 and some odd seats. And then the conservatives have a bunch of seats as well. And the, the governing party is in a minority situation, which means they need to make deals and negotiate with the other parties in opposition in order to get their votes on their legislation. So you've got this interesting system where you have to, you have, to have a lot of different conversations happening. And a lot of you know, throwing the arm around the shoulder of somebody for a night, you know, just to get something done. And then the next day you're back to being enemies or foes or, um, you know, maybe not, that's not the right language, but uh, just on opposite ends of an issue. So yeah, it's, it's different, right? So you've got a lot of different things going on there. Well, I appreciate yeah, you taking the time to talk to us today. Thank you, Karen. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. That's it for this week's show. I hope you will send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at Tech Policy Press or find us on Twitter at Tech Policy Press. Thanks to Romy Geller, Brian Jones, our guests, and thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.